This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian Timothy C. Weingard. Timothy is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Colorado, America. He joined me via Skype to talk about his new book, The Mosquito, a human history of our deadliest predator. And uh, I'm very excited now to speak with my next guest, Timothy C. Weingard. He is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Colorado, America. And uh, Timothy has written a book called The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. And it is out through text publishing in Australia. It's uh, quite a hefty tome. There's about... Let me see here, 442 pages of the kind of main text. So there's a huge amount of research that has gone into this book. And it's really a very fascinating book because it's combining essentially science and history and giving us a bit more of an accurate and coherent and cohesive picture of some of the most important events in human history and how the mosquito has really altered the course of our own history and uh, kept our population in check apparently as well. So I'm really pleased uh, to welcome via Skype Timothy C. Weingard. Hi there, Timothy. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you on to talk about this fantastic book. It's um, really fascinating reading every page. There's just so many things that I'm surprised and delighted by um, and sometimes shocked, I've got to say. Let's talk a bit about the mosquito and some of the stats that you bring in at the beginning to kind of emphasize the significance of this insect and perhaps why it has been discounted for so long. I'll read a few out to get us going. You really highlight the fact that the mosquito has killed more people than any other cause of death in human history and that statistical extrapolation situates mosquito-inflicted deaths approaching half of all humans that have ever lived, which is an estimated 52 billion people from a total of 108 billion throughout human history, which is 200,000 years. How did you get to this point where you as a historian, who I know you focus on a range of periods of history in your own writing and research and teaching, how did you get to this point where you realised the mosquito was such an important player of history um, and yet has really been neglected? Well, I think for some of my other books dealing with um, indigenous peoples globally, I've written quite a few books dealing with um, indigenous peoples all over the world, including Australia. I had come across malaria and yellow fever in my research for my previous books. But really, after my last book, um, I sat down with my dad, who's an emergency doctor back home in, in Canada, and he kept saying, your next book's got to be on disease. So I started down the rabbit hole, kind of putting some puzzle pieces together and just kept coming across, you know, specific terms throughout history relating to, to malaria, which has been the scourge of humanity uh, across our relatively brief existence. And the more research I did, the more puzzle pieces I put on the table. And this very clear picture started to emerge of uh, of just how much this tiny little animal has impacted and shaped and steered um, the course of human 
human history since since day one and even our hominid ancestral evolution in africa and as far back as the dinosaurs so it was just astounding once i went further down the rabbit hole um in some of these statistics obviously that come from from various sources and they are estimates but um and i was just shocked and so i had a wonderful time digging into all the research over you know two and a half three years and then writing for another year and a half two years so it, it was quite the journey and quite the wild ride and and I was surprised, just as you said in the introduction, um, with some of the things I found in my research about um, this this pesky little bug sticking her nose um, literally everywhere in, in human history. Mm. And we'll get to some of those examples in a moment. Um, I was surprised that at the beginning of the book, you highlight that there are actually a few places in the world where mosquitoes do not exist or they, they don't live there. And some of them are probably the, the coldest, like Antarctica and Iceland. Um, but there are also a handful of French Polynesian micro islands that apparently do not have the pleasure of, of mosquito habitation. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that is, that mosquitoes aren't in some of those places in, in the world? Well, I think that the first point is that only females bite and they need the blood of, of humans in a zoological Noah's Ark of other animals. They bite every animal going um, to, to simply um, grow and mature their eggs. So if there isn't the animals to eat there, whether it's birds, because birds are a, a big one for mosquitoes or, or other mammals, uh, reptiles, they simply can't survive to procreate. So um, Iceland is a unique ecosystem, so that's part of it. Um, and, and Antarctica obviously is just too cold um, and, and barren of, of most animals. Uh, and some of these really, really tiny um, islands in the Pacific, it's the same reason. There's just nothing to feed on, so they can't get blood to, to grow and mature their eggs and reproduce, which they're, they're designed and programmed to do. Mm. And when you describe in detail exactly what a mosquito does when they suck your blood, if you were queasy, you might start to get quite anxious and um, sickened by what exactly they do. It, but it's also quite impressive and very sophisticated in terms of um, their biology and how they've evolved to actually suck out a human's blood um, and then deposit or get rid of the kind of water element of the blood. So they're only getting the concentrated material that they need in order to breed. Could you share with us the process of a mosquito finding a human because Coming at like what attracts them to that human, um, which I also found fascinating, and what what they do. <laughs> Um, so there's a lot of mythology out there of why mosquitoes prefer some people over <clears throat> over others. Um, and unfortunately, about 85% of what makes a person alluring or less alluring to mosquitoes is is hardwired in their genetic circuit board. So you're you're kind of out of luck if, if you drew the short straw genetically. The big one is blood type. Uh, blood type O is the vintage of choice over A or B or their blend. Um, how much carbon dioxide somebody naturally respires. Carbon dioxide is, is a mosquito magnet, and they can smell carbon dioxide from over 200 feet away. Uh, how much lactic acid and other chemicals people have in and on their skin. 
Um, so it, it's a whole slew of things that are essentially genetic traits. Um, there's no truth to they prefer uh, blondes and redheads over people with darker hair, that they prefer women over men, um, that the more leathery or darker your skin is, the safer you are. Those those are all myths, uh, as well as this whole vitamin B12. I, I've been reading about that. If you take vi B, vitamin B supplements, it wards off mosquitoes. That's been debunked medically in numerous studies. And, and while we don't know the reason for this one, and some of your listeners may get upset, uh, they do prefer beer drinkers, and we don't <laughs> know why. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and applied fragrances attract mosquitoes. They hunt by both sight and smell, smell specifically that carbon dioxide, and then also wearing bright colors attracts mosquitoes. So there's a slew of things, but at the end of the day, it, most of it is genetic, specifically that blood type O. So they smell your carbon dioxide, your lactic acid, your bright colors, or you, you know your, your beer, um, and they'll land and you know do a little reconnaissance of your of your skin to find that blood vessel. And essentially, to to simplify it, they have six needles. Um, two of them are mandible cutting blades that shift back and forth, much like an electric carving knife. Uh, they saw into your skin. Two other needles uh, are retractors. Or they open um, open the skin and hold it open for the fifth needle, which is a straw, essentially, that sucks um, three to five milligrams of blood. All the while, the sixth needle goes in, which uh, pumps in saliva, which contains an anticoagulant and, and a little bit of an analgesic, uh, so you don't feel her biting, and to prevent the blood from clotting at that puncture site. And this is the tube, that sixth tube, that saliva tube, that also delivers the pathogens into um, humans and, and a ton of other animals. So there's no actual blood exchanged in the bite so mosquitoes can't transmit HIV or anything like that because there's no act they're two separate functioning tubes for uh, the sucking the blood and inserting the anticoagulant saliva so it's important to remember that it's not the mosquito uh, itself the mosquito is harmless it's the um, catalog of pathogens that she transmits during the bite uh, or these pathogens that essentially hitch a free ride via the vector of the mosquito. Mm. And um, it's really fascinating that it's always a female doing this biting. You write that male mosquitoes don't bite and that for them, their world revolves around two things, nectar and sex. And that reminds me of an interview I did about bees, which was very similar in the sense that the men were really there to provide the kind of sperm and to enable the um, females to to procreate and be the leaders and the important actors and the men were kind of like the side players. I find right. it fascinating that in this book and, you know, in human history, so much of history is um, boiled down to great men, quote unquote, and the, the, the genius <laughs> that they have in their various, you know, events and wars. And yet it's actually females who seem to be almost the most influential. Yes, the, the male mosquito gets off easy. Um, as, as you mentioned, their world revolves around um, essentially procreating and, and nectar. They drink nectar, not blood. Um, so they do pollinate flowers um, to some extent uh, and other plants, but not like bees, for example, as, as you just mentioned. They're, they're huge pollinators, and it's a worry globally that mm -hmm. the, the bee populations are, are, are in decline. Um, so male mosquitoes, what else is interesting about the reproduction is that um, 
males will mate frequently in their lifetime. Females will only mate once. Essentially, they mate once and they store the sperm and and deliver it piecemeal for each separate birthing of eggs. It's actually quite another marvelous evolutionary adaptation of, of the mosquito itself. So the animal itself is fascinating in her influence um, on history and defeating many great men, as you mentioned, um, mm. from time immemorial is quite fascinating. And there's a slew of examples, obviously, uh, and a catalog of examples in the book, um, chronologically from the dinosaurs all the way to, to present day. Yes, and um, just to kind of close out our discussion on uh, procreation and breeding, it's interesting to note that a lot of people here might associate mosquitoes with rivers or, you know, big pools of water. Um, however, you really show that you don't need much water at all to be able or for a female mosquito to be able to lay her eggs and for them to flourish and uh, mature. Uh, it depends on the species of mosquito. There's roughly 3,500, give or take, species of mosquitoes on the planet. Uh, and it's also important to keep in mind as we go further in the story that very few of these mosquito species are vectors for disease. It's a, mm. a handful of certain species that, that transmit or vector these diseases or these pathogens. Uh, but no, some mosquitoes prefer salt water some fresh water, some brackish water, some don't care at all. Uh, and they definitely don't need much. It can be a tiny little pool in a backyard toy, a Tonka truck or a used tire or they, a crushed beer can. They certainly don't need a lot. Um, and as I said, the females are just programmed to procreate and carry on their species and, and they are seemingly very good at it. And in terms of evolution, that's something that you focus on and how different species have evolved. One of the examples that you give is the Blitz air raids in London in 1940 and 41, where Germans bombed London and there were a population of Kulex mosquitoes who were confined to the air raid tunnel shelters in the underground tube, which I'm sure many people who visited are familiar with. What was was the significance of that adaptation that this kind of breed or population of mosquitoes undertook? Well, they were trapped. So, you know, they came down into the, the tube in the air raid shelters with the, the hardy uh, London civilians during the Blitz and, and the Nazi bombing. Um, and they learned to feed on, on rats and mice very quickly instead of birds uh, and humans above ground. And within 50 years, they adapted into a completely different species than their above ground um, parents. Uh, and actually, they're unable to breed with each other. So it's an evolutionary marvel just how quickly this happened. And the, the director of the British Entomology Society joked that in another 50 years, each separate line in the tube will have its own Culex mosquito populations <laughs> and new species. Um, but it just shows how quickly they can adapt and evolve to survive, which is one of the reasons we've, we've had such a hard time uh, defeating the mosquitoes, specifically the malaria-carrying Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, they adapt so quickly to insecticides and other um, frontline um, weapons that we throw their way um, and seemingly have always been able to circumvent uh, our, our best methods of extermination to survive. Um, and as I keep saying, just like any other species, including ourselves, um, they want to survive as just as much 
much as we do, so they adapt. And we see humans in our early evolution adapting to what must have been cataclysmic rates of malaria in Africa with genetic or hereditary genetic shields, such as sickle cell and thalassemia, Duffy anti-negativity to circumvent um, malaria. So it's it's been a, you know, give and take battle for as long as human beings have been on this planet. Indeed. And malaria is, you know, a very, very significant portion of this history of the mosquito. And as you write, malaria is the unsurpassed scourge of humankind and that almost 300 million people at the moment are unlucky enough annually to contract malaria from the Anopheles mosquito. And um, it's scary to think that although there have been some really great gains in treatment for malaria um, and prevention, that we're still battling with this on such a large scale. Uh, Malaria, the mosquito transmit it transmits various pathogens, so filariasis, often referred to as elephantitis, but that's not even correct. It's elephantiasis, which is a worm uh, transmitted by the mosquito that causes the engorgement of the limbs and genitals. Um, and 120 million people a year still contract filariasis from the filarial worm. Um, so well, canine heartworm in dogs is caused by mosquitoes. And then there's the virus class, which is the biggest one, which is yellow fever, Um, Dengue, West Nile, and some unique ones in Australia with the Ross River virus, uh, Murray Valley encephalitis virus, Mm. the Barma Forest virus, and your own unique version of West Nile virus in Australia, the Cungin virus. Um, So the virus class is by far the biggest. Uh, And then malaria is in its own category. It's a a protozoan parasite. It's a very unique parasite that requires both the mosquito and then another host to procreate and reproduce, essentially. So part of its reproduction takes place in the mosquito and part of it takes place in another host that could be human or a whole swath of other animals, reptiles, amphibians, birds. Uh, All the great apes have malaria. So there's over 400 types of malaria on the planet, five affecting um, human beings. So, which is again, why it's so hard to defeat malaria. It's not a virus in the traditional sense where we can, you know, um, create a vaccine. For example, yellow fevers had a vaccine uh, since the 1930s, and it's actually the only one of the virus class that has a vaccine. So we've been trying to to defeat the malaria parasite, and we've made some strides, certainly with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, since 2000, the World Health Organization, but uh, malaria continues to, to, to stalk humanity. Uh, And as you mentioned, upwards of 300 million people a year contract malaria. Yeah, and certainly it's something to to focus more on. I'm really impressed with your knowledge of Australian viruses because <laughs> I had to um, find out more about that more recently and was shocked to know about the Ross River virus and the Barma Forest viruses, which are really quite debilitating for people and um, affect them for many years, even after the kind of main part of the virus has finished. So it certainly does knock people around a lot. Let's talk about about dinosaurs um, and then we can get into humans. I'm really interested because you certainly address this idea that there are sometimes competing versions of um, history and what really was the deciding factor as to why dinosaurs are no longer here and um, left the earth. And certainly there is an important element to it of, you know, that massive event where they were essentially destroyed by, was it an asteroid? 
Yeah, the meteor crashed Media. 65, roughly 65 million years ago um, off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula uh, and what is now the touristy part of, of Mexico. Uh, and that certainly did happen. Um, the crater is about the size of the state of Vermont in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so the insect-borne disease theory doesn't supplant or replace um, the meteor collapse model that absolutely happened and it was the final final death knell if you will for dinosaur populations but we know mosquitoes have been around for at least 200 to 190 million years ago so the early jurassic period and some research pushes back mosquitoes to 225 million years ago um, so we know for sure they were around during, you know, the reign of the dinosaurs. Uh, and malaria in some form is, is is roughly 400 million years old. It started off as an aquatic algae and it still contains uh, vestiges of photosynthesis, actually, which is quite amazing. So we know that these things were around and looking at, you know, dinosaur bones and, and, and coprolite, the, the, the petrified feces, uh, we can see insect-borne worms, viruses, and parasites um, similar to malaria and yellow fever. Um, So this theory has been gaining traction for the last 10, 15 years. Um, and some, you know, theorists support the idea that roughly 70% of dinosaur species regionally were either extinct or endangered by the time it actually does hit 65 million years ago. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about one of my favourite parts of the world, Scotland. Who <laughs> <laughs> I'm pro-independence. Um, it would be great to see Scotland become independent given their desire to remain in the EU, but that's another <clears throat> subject. But I was so shocked and surprised to know that your book also covers the very important uh, influence that mosquitoes had in Scotland not being an independent nation. Can you share with us what happened in, I guess, a more condensed version because there is a lot of back and forth sure this was actually one of the more fascinating stories and i had to to find a lot of sources to corroborate this story because i i couldn't believe it but sure enough there was numerous sources that i cobbled together um long story short in the late 1600s um, Scotland was an independent country, and it being badgered by her, her more wealthy English neighbor to the south for unification, and Scotland obviously refused. Um, but the problem was is that Scotland couldn't take part in the uh, England uh, colonial or mercantilist trade with English colonies. So Scotland was coming out of a huge recession. There had been failed oat and barley um, harvests, so they were in a famine, and Scotland was in a pretty dire situation. So the idea was that Scotland could get wealthy, uh, you know, erecting colonies of their own in the Americas. So roughly, um, you know, 25 to 50% of all Scottish capital available in an already cash-strapped in starving, famined, uh, and recession-stricken country was dumped into a scheme called the Darien Scheme, and they aimed to set up a colony in Panama. Um, so they sent over boatloads of Scottish settlers, Uh, with their Bibles and their woolen blankets and woolen sweaters and socks uh, and a printing press to record all the transactions they were going to have being at the center of trade, you know, the the isthmus there. Uh, And the colony was absolutely shredded by malaria and, and yellow fever, and it floundered and it failed. And with it, all of Scottish capital that was pumped into this this colonial venture sank in Panama or was bitten by mosquitoes of Panama. It left Scotland in, in absolute dire bankruptcy. So England agreed to pay off the Scottish debt 
if Scotland would surrender its sovereignty and sign the 1707 Acts of Union, which they did. So um, Scotland surrendered its sovereignty due to malarious and, and yellow fever-ridden mosquitoes in the wilds of Panama. And when I this story just was shocking. And so um, Robbie Burns, the, the famous poet, chided the um, bought and sold for English gold what a parcel of rogues in a nation is what he says about the Scottish politicians selling out Scotland's independence after this failed Darien scheme. It's shocking, really. I still can't believe it, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) It's just changed the whole course of history. Before we get to current day and genetic editing and and that element of the book, I just wanted to get your perspective, given there are so many points in history that the mosquito has influenced. Were there any that, beyond the Scottish example, that were your favourite or that really stuck out as being surprising to you? Like, did you have a a certain favourite when you were doing the research? Uh, the Scotland story was one that, as I said, it it, it was mind-boggling once mm. I, I researched that one. So that was one of them for sure. Another one was uh, was a family connection. Uh, I'm born and raised in Canada. I've been in Colorado for about um, eight years. My wife is born and raised here, and and her grandfather fought in the Second World War for, for the Americans, and he got malaria twice. Um, during the war. Now, the first one was at Anzio when the Allied uh, forces landed at Anzio to outflank the the German line. Um, And the second time was at Dachau when his unit liberated the Dachau concentration camp. And um, Rex died, um, her grandpa Rex died a year ago, but before he died, I got to tell him how he contracted malaria. Uh, And he had no idea. He knew he had had malaria twice, but didn't understand how he could have gotten malaria at Anzio and again in, you know, southern Germany and near Munich with Dachau. So long story short, the Pontine marshes surrounding Rome, uh, 310 square miles of marshes have have safeguarded essentially Rome uh, to allow for the creation of the Roman Empire from foreign invasion, whether that be the Carthaginians, uh, the, the Visigoths, the Huns, the Vandals, the Gauls. So Mussolini actually drained the Pontine marshes successfully prior to the Second World War and cut malaria rates in Italy by over 90%. So when the Allies were planning to land at Anzio, the Nazis purposefully reflooded the Pontine marshes uh, to rejuvenate malarious mosquitoes as a premeditated act of biological warfare. Uh, and it worked. And my wife's grandfather, Rex, contracted malaria at Anzio as a result of this Nazi premeditated biological warfare using mosquitoes, uh, which was an astounding story. And then he got malaria again at Dachau, and and, um, Dachau was the head of the Nazi tropical medicine program, so they were doing horrific experiments on on Jewish inmates uh, and prisoners, Jewish prisoners there, with malaria and yellow fever and other experimental, you know, medications. And so when his unit liberated Dachau, he was bitten by one of these experimental mosquitoes and, and got malaria area for the second time. Um, And he had no idea how this happened until I told him personally in the spring of 2017, essentially what I just just told you and your audience. It was kind of amazing to lift the curtain or pull the curtain back for not only Rex, but for his wife and and my wife and her entire family of how this all happened. And he was 96 years old and he was sitting in his, you know, armchair and drinking a scotch after dinner when I told him this story. And he, he looked at me with this kind of stoic grin and just looked at me and said, Tim, that makes sense. 
I mean, it's bad and horrible, but it's almost like what you would class as evil genius to be doing something which now is utilised all the time in terms of biological warfare and was still kind of in its early stages in World War Two. It's shocking to to discover that that's what they were doing. Yes, it was uh, certainly shocking. And then to have that family connection made yeah. it even more real. And certainly in the book, using Rex's narrative, um, for the Second World War helps kind of put a personal face to to that story and the story of the, the horrific experiments at Dachau on the, the Jewish prisoners. So um, that was something that I, I found fascinating. And again, being able to kind of share with, with Rex and his whole family how this all happened, um, you know, and he died about a year later at 97. So uh, that was, was interesting and certainly I think a little bit rewarding for himself and mm. his larger family as well. Yeah, indeed, because you would often think, well, oh, perhaps I'm just really unlucky if you, you weren't aware of what the cause might have been to, to have hit twice. Right, and unfortunately, the reflooding of the Pontine Marshes as an act of biological warfare backfired in a way too because the Germans also contracted <laughs> malaria at Anzio as well, so it wasn't just the Allies, but it was also intended by Hitler to be punishment for the Italian civilians who had just switched sides in the war as well. And he wanted to punish them with, with malaria. And he makes this quite clear uh, to punish the Italian civilians first by any means necessary. Gosh, I'm glad that we've um, since moved slightly from that period of history, but it is still, as you shared just there, it's still recent and there are people who are alive who were involved in World War II. So it is great to have that human connection. Let's talk about current day and genome editing and sequencing. This is only a fairly recent event that we were able to sequence the human genome and other plant genomes. And I was really fascinated about this idea and did a little bit of research after to see what the scientific community was saying about it. With this idea of CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, and the fact that perhaps given mosquitoes have been so damaging to human society, some people have proposed a range of solutions, one of which would be to just wipe out mosquitoes and another of which would be to change the mosquito's genetic makeup so that it doesn't pass on these types of pathogens. And, of course, you say the latter option would be preferred by a number of people. But I'm interested in this this idea of what the mosquito offers the ecosystem and how vital or not it is and uh, what your thoughts are on this proposal in a, in a bit of a brave new world scenario. <laughs> yeah, I need to start with the fact going back to what I mentioned earlier, which is an important point is that of the 3,500 mosquito species, give or take on the planet, there's only a handful, relatively speaking, of those 3,500 uh, that are capable of vectoring or tr transmitting disease. So it's important to note that nobody is promoting the eradication of all mosquitoes from the face of the planet. Um, that's not what, what anybody's promoting. So we yeah. need to be very clear. It would be targeting very specific species of the Anopheles uh, mosquitoes that transmit malaria and the 80s mosquitoes that transmit uh, a swath of those viruses that I talked about and then the Culex mosquito as well, certain species. So 
It's not a a wholesale eradication of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, I mean, we don't know 100% that they serve an absolute or or irreplaceable function. But as I mentioned, since the males do drink nectar and don't bite, um, they do pollinate plants. And I actually got an email from the the president of the American Orchid Association after he had read my book saying that if we wiped out mosquitoes, uh, certain orchids are only pollinated by mosquitoes. So that we'd, we'd lose a handful of orchid species as well. Yeah. And he was very adamant that we shouldn't do that, uh, being a lover of the flowers. <laughs> so uh, they do serve as a food source for other animals. So, for example, certain fish, specifically trout and salmon, eat the eggs that float on the top of the water or the little caterpillars uh, that the eggs hatch into that skim along the, the top of the water. Bats eat a lot of mosquitoes. So bats are actually a very, very important part of the ecosystem, and, and they're also getting a kind of a bad rap lately, um, pardon the, the slang, but um, bats gorge themselves on mosquitoes. So where you see thriving bat populations, you also see lower mosquito populations. So they do serve a, a function, and and I don't, I don't have an opinion on this, but obviously they've been humanity's most deadliest predator across our existence so they may control or act as a malthusian check against uncontrolled human population growth now i'm not going to pick sides on that one but that's certainly an argument that's been put forth so with the crispr gene editing technology that came out in 2012 out of of berkeley with a woman named dr jennifer doudna it's absolutely fascinating in jurassic park if you will is real we have the ability to intrude on natural selection and replace the DNA of any animal, humans, mosquitoes, or otherwise, with desired DNA, uh, thereby permanently altering the genome of, of that creature. And it's, you know, it's a bit like opening Pandora's box. And it, it certainly, as you mentioned, a brave new world. It's, it is scary and it's um, fascinating all at the same time. Um, as far as mosquitoes goes, there's two avenues with. CRISPR, and one is to CRISPR mosquitoes in a lab, uh, release them into a uh, into the wild. These spe- only the specific species that that vector disease, mind you, um, and thereby when they mate, their offspring would be all male and fertile or stillborn, essentially, or you know, wiping out that mosquito species. Now the other avenue with CRISPR is to CRISPR these specific vectoring species with something called a gene drive or a selfish gene that would be passed down their bloodlines, uh, pardon the pun, so a hereditary gene that would make these species simply harmless by making them incapable of actually vectoring or transmitting these pathogens, thereby bringing down the pathogen itself but not the mosquito species. Interesting. And um, in terms of the ideas around this, that's obviously one non-chemical way of addressing a situation. And the alternative which many councils and governments have used and even individuals have been using is to use quite harmful chemicals historically to spray certain areas where the mosquitoes have laid their eggs. And um, you highlight the fact that they're 
these mosquitoes really mature very quickly, like almost within a week, um, you go from being an egg to um, a fully flying mosquito. So obviously, spraying is, you know, not that ideal. And it also has some really significant environmental and human consequences. What was your understanding before we um, have to head off of the chemical approach? And um, I'm thinking of examples like DDT and chloroquine, um, which were used after the Second World War. Well, I think when we look at the the, the insecticides to to spray chemicals to you know eradicate mosquitoes, uh, they evolve so quickly that you know again they're still here, 110 trillion of them on the planet. They evolve so quickly to become immune to these insecticides. So, for example, when DDT was um, commercially available to farmers as of 1946 they basically you know paved paradise to use Joni Mitchell's vernacular with DDT and depending on the species of mosquitoes it took anywhere from 2 to 20 years for those mosquito species to become immune to DDT so the banning of DDT had more to do with its failure and that it didn't work anymore than any political clout um, that you know Rachel Carson wrote in Silent Spring uh, or any large-scale political environmental movement it just simply didn't work and and we have to be careful here too is that using DDT for residual spraying around houses specifically to surgically target mosquitoes was not what caused the environmental degradation it was the carpeting agricultural use by farmers that created so much harm and environment environmental degradation to other animals and then eventually entering entering our own human food chain and causing cancers so um, that's an important point and again with chloroquine or any other anti-malarial the problem is is that the malaria parasite adapts so quickly too by the time we do our human trials we've exposed the malaria parasite to these chemicals or these drugs so by the time it's made commercially available the parasites had a long time to shapeshift to be able to circumvent these drugs, rendering them obsolete so quickly. And we've seen this over and over and over again with all these anti-malarials, including chloroquine, which is why malaria is still so um, you know, proficient and widespread across certain parts of the planet. Timothy, I cannot thank you enough for what has been such a fascinating discussion and I feel like I've learned so much and I can't look at the world the same way again. So I appreciate what you've done with this book, which must have taken, as you said, a, a while to research and to really check into because of the wondrous and amazing kind of stories that you've uncovered through history. So congratulations and thank you so much for giving us your time today. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you.